Thank you, Gary. Is this sound right? Is it the right height? Okay. No, I, I meant to ask you. Okay, so I'm fine now? Okay, okay, good. Well, it's it's great to be back here again. I, I love being here and, and, um, and getting to know some of you and... And thank you for coming tonight. I'm, I'm looking forward to reading to you. I'm going to read from So Late, So Soon, which spans my, all my other poetry books, though not the widening, and read a couple of new poems that aren't in it. Um, and I, I'm going to start with the newest section of So Late, So Soon, and then and kind of move around in it and end up at the very end, back in the newest section. So, organize. This first poem is called Out of the West. Out of the West, unexpected, lyric, a stand of yellow irises rises from the pond muck. Two horses graze the field, one limping from the fire they fled. Matter and spirit meet, love, argue, wherever you rest your eyes on microscopic midges, horseflies. This next poem is called Matter and Spirit, and it's in seven short sections, and each one is titled. So the first title, the first section is called In the Beginning. Mortified by their attraction, whoever introduced them long forgotten, matter and spirit meet on the sly, their affair and open secret. Upstairs to the left. Matter turns down the sheets. Spirit closes the blinds. An itinerant composer hearing the creaking bed springs fills a page with half notes, quarter notes, melisma. The desk clerk drowsing in front of a deck of cards dreams of palm fronds, asphalt blistering in the sun. Together all night. Whereas matter predictably snores, spirit can't sleep, even in the amniotic sac, an insomniac. Rendezvous of one. One day matter receives a wire. Indefinite delay, proceed. So matter sets off alone, collects the key, saunters in, pulls the shade, retreats to a corner chair, unzips to film strip in his head, footage shot on the empty bed. Traffic. Stuck in traffic, matter desperately tries telepathy. I'll be late, please wait. I'll be late, please wait. Spirit gets the message, but not so above it all, after all, turns on her heel, put out by his feet of clay. Cat's Cradle. Without matter, spirit knocks about the house, forgets to dress. Hours evaporate without having come full boil, the day a sketch pad, blank of the rough thoughts one had, thought to but didn't sketch out. Hands ache within action, if only to mold clay, string a cat's cradle, cradle a cat chain reaction. The bliss that spirit feels, 
The satisfaction that is matters as they commingle. Are they? Do they look the same? A full moon's held note, a chain of clouds like a chain of islands, the unfurling fern frond of a seahorse's tail, a Siberian iris, a cool blue ibis, rain inside a mausoleum, rain under a tin roof, a porcupine and a spice pomander, paired What is there to bind them? Aside from a wandering mind's bliss, its satisfaction. Um, I think that Vermont is a little bit like New Mexico where I live in that people, um, some people, can. Am I right? (laughs) Can fruit. Um, Anyway, this um, can. Not can, can, can. 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 Canning, the canning of fruit. Um, (laughs) Anyway, it's not something I do, but I've done it once. And this is a poem about that. It's called Canning in Chimayo. And Chimayo is a rural town in New Mexico near where we live. And um, the first line uh, is in quotes. Feed me, fuck me, feed me, fuck me, feed me. Knife a whirligig, each trochee slashed off, translucent Venus beat wheels heaped like raked-in poker chips, her disquisition on canning upended by the nightly crapshoot she can't in her viscera shake, only vitiate at the chopping block. Eyes pop, widen. Not one of us can slice that fast. Someone passes a jay, someone pours more wine. Cheeks streaked, wrists ribboned, thumbs pressed to temples, she aprons her head. Then the beets are vinegared, the whole mess sealed in mason jars, the Italian plums eviscerated, mounded with sugar, put to boil. The corn cobs flayed, pearl onion and red pepper strips stirred into the kernels, all four of us at the counter mulling it over. Feed me, fuck me. Pressure cooker preserves. October sunrise. Here on the western edge of the time zone, I sleep in, but it's dark when I get up. On the other side of the divide, you rise at the same moment, though it's early, light already pastels and recontours the sky. Ahead of me, The day, a nickel buffalo, flared nostrils and scuffed up dust clouds through which I dimly see you gather Sarah and start the car, the cold engine steaming my drained cup. A pen lies on the desk, a tool in a dentist tray, its gleam patent, prying. Open your mouth, it wheedles, open wide. Twisting away, I glimpse two chairs askew, crushed napkins, your untouched tea. It wasn't until I started reading this that I was think that I started thinking, well, there are, as the situation I was in when I wrote it, a lot of people here missing their families, probably, um, you know, somewhere else to write. Um, this next poem is the first poem in my first book, um, which was uh, taken from the river, and it's called. 64 Panoramic Way. 
Like easy conversation, rambling, obliquely angled, the winding street traverses the steep residential hill. Stone stairs ladder stitch the street's tiers. Every few rungs open on terraces, windows glinting through hedges, sunlight feathering grass. At the first switchback, pine needles tufted with dog fur pad the wide cracked steps leading to a cottage and two ramshackle shingle houses. From the lintel of an illegal basement apartment, magenta fuchsia, silent bells, bob and sag over a pot's rim. Higher, up wooden stairs built over rubble, we climb to the top deck. What was our garden now grows wild onions, white flowers, and butter-yellow weeds, winter's mohair throw draping a bare mattress. By late spring, someone else, or no one, will be bending to pick cool herbs like single guitar notes. Something knots my throat. Indecipherable decibels begin jackhammering inside number D, our old address. Black Sabbath? Iron Maiden? I know our own records by the first chord. Pounding, we try the unlocked door and pick our way through a year's domestic fallout, dropped clothes, album sleeves, mattresses blocking entrances, plates, cups, hangers, books. I trip trying not to look. Waving on the balcony, an old guest, now our host, offers us the view. At this time of year, no yellow beech roses tumble the latticed railing, no draft of honeysuckle, no bees flitting near their hive. Cars nose around the hairpin turn, looking past Berkeley's hazy flat grids, past Oakland. You can see, as if you flicked a painted fan open, a striped spinnaker tacking the wide bay, three bridges, and San Francisco shrugging off her damp negligee. Some water. And this is um, called the peony. A man cups his fingers as if to bring them to his lips to blow me a goodbye kiss, or as if he were Italian to underscore his words. He is not Italian. He is not speaking. And he does not bring his fingers to his lips. Gravely they descend upon a peony held up by the rim of its fishbowl vase. Because I would be his, he tells me a secret it is mine to know, all the while spreading the silky petals with his slowly opening hand, so that the peony is made to bloom to its fullest until it is an open globe over brimming the vase. Only now do I think of those paper flowers that blossomed when we floated them in water as girls. The words of the secret blurred as soon as I woke, but his light hand gravely forcing the peony, that remains. I wanted to read um, from the the t- from the the poem "The Lightning Field," the, the title poem to my my last book, and it's a long sequence. It's sixteen sections, and I thought I'd read about half of it, 
Um, and the, the lightning, it comes from um, a uh, art installation in central New Mexico, which is a lightning field. And the poem, the first section describes it, but it's you know, a mile by a kilometer, tall, tall poles, and it attracts lightning, and, and the Dia Foundation runs it, and you can go there. Um, it's very isolated, and it's quite beautiful. And I, when we, I didn't really expect to be moved by it, but I was quite moved by it moved to write this poem trying to mimic the shape of the field and, um, and mostly the, with the intention of attracting, the way I put it to myself, was of attracting charged material or trying to attract lightning. And so the poem has lots of different elements and some of it's kind of meditative and um, some of it describes the field and some of it goes far off. And... Um, I'll start with the first section, and I'll end with the last section, and I'll go in order, but I'll be skipping, skipping some. <clears throat> the lightning field. 400 equidistant stainless steel poles, 25 by 16, gird and grid the mile-long, kilometer-wide field that was once a plain. Like polished spears with solid tapered tips, they rise over 20 feet. Sounding the air, attuned to the light's least vibrato, between dawn and dusk, they all but disappear. It was the hope of lightning drew us here, and for an hour or so, there is lightning, violet strikes, frequent, sharp, and silent above the mountains, ringing the plain. But the poles do not require lightning, they are aggregate enough. Would we have walked so casually into the scrub and desert plain without the reassurance of these meets and bounds? Past the first gulch, before we reach the corner pole, the cabin drops below our line of sight. Quickly, characterize and distinguish the mountains to the west from the range to the east, the north, the south. But we could rely on the sun, you say, before I've had a chance to get my bearings, your profile still so new, studying not the mountains, but the cloud-lit sky. Leaving the perimeter, we work our way in, zigzagging from pole to pole. Although the land itself is rolling and pitted, the pole tips form a horizontal plane flat enough to support a sheet of glass. Walking among them, you don't notice the pole's lengths vary by over seven feet. They look identical. What is disarming is the languor-inducing rhythm of their recurrence. They are far enough apart that as you walk between them, it is hard to keep in mind the multi-angled interrelationships that subtly tug at you from all directions when you stop next to any one of them. Or is it that walking 220 feet, 311 cutting across the diagonal, allows you to forget? You might be holding hands, stumbling over the rough terrain, listening hard for crickets, absorbed in particular by nothing, maybe mulling over the near homonyms liar and liar, or talking of love, your love, and how the breasts on Michelangelo's women are like sacks affixed to a man's musculature. <laughs> when, mid-sentence, you are stopped up short by an innocuous-looking juncture and forced to scrutinize the meaning of your next step.
Your mind unkinks itself like carded wool as one foot steps in front of the other, circling the five-foot figure-eight infinity loop painted on tarmac at the beach's edge in Bolinas. Soon, like a Himalayan ascetic, you've walked yourself into a waking trance, not breaking pace for any passerby who cuts into your path, only asking a man to move his motorcycle when he begins to park it where one end of the eight loops back. You've heard that if a silkworm's cocoon is softened with water, a continuous thread of silk will unravel for a thousand yards and think the spool a spider draws from must be endlessly self-renewing her many spinnerets, producing thread as her design requires. You keep walking. With each successive loop, you are being unwound and reconfigured, a skein of slub silk crisscrossed between thumb and little finger of an outstretched palm. Weavers call this bundling a butterfly. On your way home, a brood of monarchs hovers over a field of purple milkweeds, roosting. But one moment you could put your finger on, there were no omens only unread signs. At the center of the world, a seismic hole cut out of a jade disc inscribed with signs delicate as a sandpiper's tracks at low tide. A wrought iron bed in a bare room, a star of Zion patchwork quilt, your hands, my hips, falling asleep still joined, Every trap sprung free. Smegma at the umbilicus and bitter ululations for the dead, love's untranslatable glossolalia welling up in my throat, tonguing my ear. Is it a faulty O-ring causes leakage between worlds, the mystic's watery eye, the desert altar's perennially trickling spring? No amount of celestial calculations can explain that bolt from the blue, that pure engine of divine kindness that brought us face to face. At the center of the world, two molted eagle feathers, one that stands in a bud vase filled with salt, one held up by a screw eye. Looking across the room as caravans of clouds Slow wagon trains lumber across the windows quartered plains. I want to rouse you out of your light sleep, let you demonstrate as the clouds drift how thoroughly you penetrate my world. Remember the row of Lux Perpetua candles lining your bedroom's brick-propped plywood shelf, each votive wrapped in waxy red-striped paper, stamped with the Virgin's upturned, suffering face? And how, hidden behind the left-hand speaker, you had a box, no, a carton of condoms? Looking knee to knee at Vermeer's lace maker, you showed me how you saw in the loose strands that overflow the velvet sewing box an image of the imagination's bounty. I said that I saw thread, a pair of hands, a girl's head bent down in taxing concentration, her own hand-worked collar framing her face. 
I remember you walking backwards into your room, drawing me with you, toward you, by both hands, the bundle of fifty yarrow stalks I'd brought, still splayed out on the front room's floor, one stalk still set apart to stand for the infinite, beginningless beginning and endless end, according to the Xeroxed instruction sheet. Not then, not yet, not that first night, but later, now, I see how liminal and charged we were in the laced and spiky candlelight, bending to meet the mattress on the floor, to meet like changing lines in a full embrace. Lucid before the shutter shuts, oxbone, tortoise shell, veins on the back of a hand, lightning's return stroke, a calligraphic radical, incised in ionized air, abrupt illuminant, shape-shifting glyph, revealing not what I want, but what is, imprinted on the eye, a pseudomorph, ghost weave of disintegrated silk, lozenge-patterned sawtooth twill, lodged in the bronze axe, patina it once protected, the fiber purified, the line distilled, like a thumbprint secreted in beeswax, a six-week embryo scanned on the screen, the ultrasound grainy as an etch-a-sketch, scanned, then bled out without a heartbeat, not what I want, but to accept what is, to discern call from cowl, cowl from shroud, the unborn from the dead, grieving from grief. Love, help me brush the cinder from my hair. This morning thunder woke me before dawn, patulous with desire, aching to be part of the rain, pelting the skylight, part of lightning's jagged latticework. But what is rain or lightning to me? What could I, listening in bed, possibly be to the rain? Indelible as the potter's smudged thumbprint on a carbon-dated thousand-year-old shard, as a silk root traced back to a shred of silk plaited in an Egyptian mummy's hair, as a leaf-shaped lime burn scarring a left wrist, as Cossack hooves heard from inside a cold oven, while to someone else the rain brings back nights of caged silkworms chewing on mulberry leaves, and for me, walking the city's gridded blocks, tears that didn't fall but never stopped sounding inside me, until all at once they did stop, leaving an exquisite quiet and the air clear. As after a lightning storm, when the sky's electrical balance is restored, quintillions of electrons having swarmed earthward through a channel five times as hot as the sun, As my friend described the bodiless voice, it could not have been more emphatic or distinct. Not one breath, not one heartbeat is your own. After that, he never took psilocybin again and began keeping his covenant with God. Before searching the sky for Hayakutake, first I trained my binoculars on you. In the desert, your eyes must be strong as stone. But come, close them now. Rest them in this dark. 
Seen from above, I think the lightning field must look like a bed of nails or garden spikes, a force field of ambiguous auspices, an artifact with calendric implications. Although an aerial view did determine which way the field was positioned on the land, the artist declares that an aerial view is of no value. The experience takes place within the field, walking among the poles in a small group or alone. Set in concrete foundations one foot down and three feet deep, each pole, engineered to hold its own in wind up to 100 miles per hour and cut to within an accuracy of one one-hundredth of an inch to its own length, is a single line in an abstract poem, the surface repetition unfathomable while meaning accrues across the full array which never can be walked the same way twice. I wanted to retrace our steps, the air to vibrate with the same electric hum, unseen cicadas, flashes of forked lightning. But the terrain shifted under my feet, and each confluence I thought I recognized, a play of light invariably transformed. Let's see. Find the next poem. There it is. Um, this is called The Butterfly. It's actually from an earlier book. And it has a, an epigraph from the Natya Shastra, which is the East Indian book of classical dance. And it goes, The eye follows the hand, the mind follows the eye, the heart follows the mind. It's instructions for dance. The Butterfly. When I mentioned this today, it's that poem I mentioned for those of you who heard, heard my talk. With no appreciable weight, a butterfly alit and rode my finger an hour or longer. Holding my hand ahead, I let the butterfly lead. We walked down to the kill, its wings an upright sail. I was almost afraid to breathe, but my feet knew the path, its slipknot roots and slingshot branches. I sat down on a rock. I couldn't believe my luck. The world right then seemed kind, a butterfly on my hand, its bronze wings spread flat, pulsing to raise its body heat. Like a fluttering eyelash, it tickled the web of flesh between forefinger and thumb. My life can never be the same, I thought, studying the leopard spots of its eyes, its veins like pleats, its scalloped scales, its legs, six knobby little twigs, the thorax's fuzzy patina, the two slender antennae bulb-tipped like matchsticks, and the pointed black circumflex markings on each scored wing, accents from the mother tongue. With its proboscis, it sipped salt from my hand and tapped out a secret code, the secret names of God, invisible to man, imprinted on my skin. If I could have become a fern, a stone, a stalk of corn, instead my left hand twitched and the butterfly detached itself, all in a breath, my article of faith, momentarily tame as if out of a dream, now circling the rock, not coming back. Let's see. Hmm. 
I'm going to read, I'll read um, one more poem from this book, and then two new poems, and then end with a poem from the book. I think that's time-wise pretty good to find it. Here it is. It's called Lou Reed in Istanbul. In the poem I had in mind, one blue-tiled stanza containing a striped divan and a single tulip slip ends at a lattice window behind whose fretwork an entire regiment of red urban tulips is posted, standing guard with drawn daggers. Steam obscured one stanza, making its marble sweat, veiling its women's naked boredom with languor, their faint mustachios with clove-scented dew, dew that dissolves on the tongue like sugar, but tastes bitter briny, indigestible as tears. A sinuous line of incense led to an inner courtyard where someone crouched over a brass brazier, fanned wisps of musky smoke up the bellows of her skirt. Hearing the click-clack of my heels on the cobble, she turned to appraise me, quickly got back to work. That mother-of-pearl intarsiate poem, poem of the narrow-necked vase, the bejeweled mirror, of pumice and water pipes and plush labyrinthian women who glide up from the foot of the bed, who hide their emotions even from the moon. Lou Reed Shanghai, that poem, he runs its arched passageways, despotic as a eunuch, slouches on his pillows, the sheer stocking corseleted crossdresser on Transformers cover, where, in Bilbao at 17, listening to Vicious, to Satellite of Love, in a Spanish boy's bed, a year before Franco finally died, high on codeine cough syrup, I first saw him, his cock in the facing photo, a concealed nightstick. Now, listening to his roughed-up deadpan under a domed moon just up the Bosphorus from Topaki's Seralgo, watching some starlings swoop toward the stage to flit in the lights, I remember how it felt, Swoop, swoop, oh baby, rock, rock, the blood rush of being set loose. So, so the, these two poems are, are new, new-ish. And the first one is called Innocence. And I was pleased to read tonight because Elizabeth Powell is here and it's in, um, it's in Green Mountains Review. So thank you for coming. Innocence. His number was 120. The lottery got to 90. I would have gone to Canada, he says, candlelight pocking the smooth alabaster of his chest. Outside the window, a whiplashing of leaves. Your relief, even so many years beyond, is sharp, visceral, laced with a stubborn will. Hail is all you want to know of shrapnel camisoles of camouflage. Angling two fingers up and down the speed bumps of his ribs like a skier taking moguls, you try not to imagine him young, as perishable and unmarked then as your nephews now. That's kind of my idea of a domestic war poem. (laughs) So... 
Um, this is called alert, alert. Night sweats, sweat between my breasts. The sheet slick, my mind a mattress left out and pecked open, stripped of its stuffing by magpies battening their nest high in the courtyard's cottonwood. 2 a.m., 3 a.m., 4, I watch your mother's paintings process their basement archive single file, see how narrowly they avoid the boiler the stacked and vacated steamer trunks. In the sunroom, a gessoed canvas clamped to an easel, clean brushes furred to the tabaret. Don't miss the bus, don't miss the bus, my father Talmudically warns from beyond his freshly tamped grave as an owl's twin search beams exhume the dark. The nightly raid begins with a series of hoots. The seats are soaked. The heart I gave you, the one currently confined in me, fibrillates nonstop like a tin spoon banged between iron bars, self-celebration morphing into solitary panicked protest in the shadow of the owl's launch. And then this is um, actually the first poem in So Late, So Soon, and um, it's a pantoum, which I'm sure many of you know is a repeating form. And it was, I was asked to collaborate with a quilter for a, a show with textiles and, and, um, and poems. And we, we discovered, we were doing this by email, and you know, I looked at her quilts and she, I mean, images of them, and she looked at my poems. And, but we dis- it was hard to figure out how to do this. We discovered that we both had a love for Agnes Martin's work, whom some of the minimalist painter, excuse me, who lived for many years in New Mexico. And so um, her quilt kind of took off on on those paintings. And my poem um, has incorporated many phrases from a wonderful book of Agnes Martin's called Writings, which is just wild and wonderful with lots of aphorisms. And it's, it's a wonderful book. So you'll find quilting language, because I qu- quizzed the quilter on quilting language, as well as Agnes Martin's things embedded in here. Quilted pantoum. Composition is an absolute mystery. To penetrate the night is one thing. You get light enough and you levitate. To be penetrated by the night, another. To penetrate the night is one thing. The mind knows what the eye has not seen to be penetrated by the night, another. Overtaken, we feel a certain devotion. The mind knows what the eye has not seen. Perfection, of course, cannot be represented. Overtaken, we feel a certain devotion. Think of a shibori-dyed silk organza quilt. Perfection, of course, cannot be represented, pieced and layered a little bit off the square, Think of a shibori-dyed silk organza quilt, but without batting, transparent, floating, pieced and layered a little bit off the square, the layers hand-tied together with horsehair, but without batting, transparent, floating. Try to understand court misunderstanding. 
The layers hand-tied together with horsehair, the grids of the layers overlap like voices. Try to understand, court misunderstanding. The seams, like letting, show through. The grids of the layers overlap like voices. One thing I've got a good grip on is remorse. The seams, like letting, show through. Before it's put on paper, it exists in the mind. One thing I've got a good grip on is remorse. Technique a hazard, interruptions a disaster. Before it's put on paper, it exists in the mind. Rectangles lighten the square's weight. Technique a hazard, interruptions a disaster. Composition is an absolute mystery. Rectangles lighten the square's weight. You get light enough and you levitate. Thank you.